Good evening, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to another Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and um, hold your applause for when we need it. Um, I just want to chat with you very briefly and ask people to move forward as much as possible, very briefly about your role as the audience, because it's not passive. Uh, it's quite active, and I'll explain how and what you need to do. The first thing I want to ask you to explain is that we're being broadcast ultimately next week by Bloomberg Television uh, globally and across the nation by more than 220 NPR stations, and um, that means an audience literally of millions of people. And to that end, I want to ask you to turn off all of your electronic devices completely. Um, even if they're on uh, some sort of airplane mode, the microphones will still pick up the vibration. And you don't want your phone to be the reason that the broadcast is ruined. Um, and I'll remind you at the end of the evening to turn them back on again. So as, as the audience, um, you have the critical role of being the judges in this debate. We are going to ask you to vote two times during the debate. At the beginning, now, at the very beginning, before you've heard the arguments on where you stand on the motion, and again at the end, and the way we score this is that the team that has changed the most minds is the team that has declared our winner, as in that this is an event of persuasion. And the way that you vote, if you look at your seats, every seat has to the right-hand side, uh, left-hand side, it changes every, every time, left-hand side, a keypad, and you will use that keypad to register your vote. If you agree with our motion that Islam is a religion of peace, you press number one when asked. If you disagree, if you're against the motion, you press number two, and if you're undecided, you press number three. The other buttons are irrelevant, and if you make a mistake, just correct your mistake, and the system will record your last button push. The other way in which you're active in this debate is at about the halfway point. I'm going to come to you in the audience for questions. And I really I want to have a very short talk about questions. I would really like them to be questions. Questions that are on our topic or very, very closely related to our topic that will, that will provoke the debaters to continue the discussion, perhaps in a, in a new direction, but related to what we're doing. What I'll do is microphones will be uh, available to you in the audience. If you raise your hands, I'll find you. I'm going to pick three people. I'd like you to ask your questions in succession, and then I'll choose from those questions. If, I, I will make a judgment about whether they're relevant enough, and I will put those questions to the debaters. I'd really like you to think in terms of speaking in 30, for under 30 seconds, and I really would like it to have a question mark at the end. I don't want to, I want to discourage you're debating with the debaters. I want to discourage you saying I have a three-part question. I want to discourage you from saying I just have a few notes that I need to read. Really think in terms of a question, because if you don't, I'm going to cut you off and I'm going to disallow the question. But very often in these debates, the best moments actually come from the audience questions. So those are your two roles, uh, to ask questions and move the debate along and to vote and to vote well. Uh, and now I'd like to welcome our debaters to the stage. We're about to begin. One, one more thing, if you're in the upper levels, we will not have microphones available for questions there. So come on down if you feel that you want to ask a question. And now I would like to introduce the chairman of Intelligence Squared U.S., who makes all of this responsible, Mr. Robert Rosenkrantz. Good 
Welcome and thank you all for coming. Uh, my task in these evenings is to frame the debate. And uh, in this particular case, I want to start by quoting George W. Bush, who often proclaimed that Islam is a religion of peace. It's one of the few things he said with which President uh, Obama is in full agreement. And it is doubtless true that the vast majority of Muslims around the world live peacefully and do not condone violent acts. Their secular concerns are dominant, making a living, raising families, educating their children. Their religion provides spiritual comfort, a source of meaning, even transcendence to their lives. On the other hand, just today the New York Times reported that uh, Faisal Shahzad, the, New the Times Square bomber, said in court prior to sentencing, quote, brace yourselves because the war with Muslims has just begun. And certainly in the past decades, the vast majority of terrorist activity has been undertaken in the name of Islam. In some respects, Islamism resembles the totalitarian movements of the first half of the 20th century, the ruthless use of violence in pursuit of ideology and power by Hitler, Stalin, Mao. Just as most of their victims were their own people, most victims of Islamist terror have indeed been Muslims. But history is replete with examples of violent minorities who have held sway over peace-loving majorities. Perhaps the relevant question for this evening is what the majority of Muslims believe. But perhaps it is whether Islam, viewed as an ideological force, is in direct opposition to Western interests and Western values. Should we respect Islam as a religion of peace, or should we accept Samuel Huntington's view that we are engaged in a clash of civilizations. Or might this be a false dichotomy? Can we honor our own traditions of pluralism and free exercise of religion and tolerance and accept that for the vast majority of Muslims it is indeed a religion of peace without compromising our ability to defend ourselves and our values against the ruthless few that wish us harm? Well, these are subtle and complex questions, and we've assembled an extraordinary panel of experts this evening to uh, explore them. It's now my privilege to turn the evening over to our moderator, John Donvan. But before I do so, I'd like to invite a round of applause to congratulate him on his third Emmy Award. Welcome, everyone, to another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and once again, it is my honor to act as moderator as the four debaters you see sharing this stage with me here at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Four debaters, two against two, will be debating this motion, Islam is a religion of peace. Now, this is a debate. There will be winners and losers. And you, our audience, will be acting as the judges. By the time this debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before, and once again after the debate on where you stand on this motion. And the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winner. So let's go to the preliminary vote. If you go to the keypads on your seat, our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. If you are for the motion, press number one. If you are against the motion, press number two. If you are undecided, press number three. 
You can correct any mistake just by repressing and ignore the other numbers. And we will present the results of both votes for you at the end of the evening. And that's how we will know who our winner is. So opening round, sorry, I'm going to put it this way. Round one is opening statements by each side, seven minutes in turn. And I would like to begin by introducing our first speaker for the motion, Islam is a religion of peace. I'd like to introduce Zeba Khan, the only American on our panel and quite possibly the youngest debater ever to take part in an Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Welcome, Zeba. I, I, I know that I first became aware of you when the Washington Post was running a reality game show to name America's next pundit. They had 1,400 entrants. And what pace place did you come in? They had 4,800 uh, entrants, actually. 4,800. And you came in? I came in second. Second. Well, <laughs> look where you are now. Ladies and gentlemen, Zeba Khan. Thank you. I want to express my deepest gratitude to the, Mr. Rosencrantz and the Intelligence Squared Forum for allowing me to speak tonight alongside such well-known and far more distinguished co-panelists. This is particularly an honor for me because, let's be honest, I haven't written a book. I'm not a regular on national TV or radio. What I have is my story. I am a Muslim-American woman born and raised in Toledo, Ohio, by two very loving Indian Muslim parents. My sister, brother, and I were raised in a middle-class American home. We went to mosque on Sundays, attended Sunday school classes, and prayed the community prayer with our community of Pakistanis, Lebanese, and Syrian Muslims. When I was in high school, our mosque president was a woman who did not wear a headscarf. And it may come as a surprise to some of you, but for the entirety of my life, men and women have prayed side by side at our mosque, and both can enter the prayer hall in the, using the same door. My parents are both very religious people, but they express their faith in different ways. My father emphasizes the devotional, and he tends to spend his time praying and reciting the Quran, whereas my mother emphasizes a more constructive approach. She uses community service and volunteering to express hers. But what they both share is fundamental Islamic principles, First and foremost, seek knowledge. They, sent, they urged their children, all three of us, to question, to have critical minds, and to doubt. They wanted us to engage fully with our faith and to question everything. They lived out the Quranic commandment that there is no compulsion in religion, and also that God said in the Quran, I made you into many tribes so that you might know one another. And as such, they enrolled me and my siblings in a Hebrew day school for nine years, where we learned Hebrew, read the Torah, and prayed in a synagogue almost every morning. They always wanted us to learn about other faiths, and they always made, an, an, uh, they always made sure that we knew the difference, though, between Islam and Judaism. But they always made sure we also respected our Jewish sisters and brothers in faith. My story is just one of 1.5 billion stories in some 57 countries. The Muslim population is one of the most diverse and eclectic in the world. We are Sunnis, we're Shias, and even in the Shia tradition, there are Zaydis, Ismailis, Isma Asharis. There are numerous madhabs or schools of thought and Sufi mystic orders. Like Christians and Jews, Muslims can be observant, 
non-observant, reformist, humanist, secularist, extremist, mainstream, and there are even some Muslims who consider themselves culturally Muslim but are actually atheist. Now, the motion for you tonight is asking you to determine whether Islam is a religion of peace. And at first blush, that might seem a bit tricky to decide. After all, the Quran and the Hadith have verses in them that point to peace and, and justice and love. But there are other verses that are violent, are about violence and about violence against specific people. So how then do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory verses? How then do we decide whether Islam is a religion of peace? The only way to answer that question is to take an honest look at the people who practice the faith and how they interpret it. According to Gallup's groundbreaking study on what a billion Muslims think, 93% of Muslims around the world are peaceful, mainstream Muslims. 7% are what Gallup terms as politically radicalized. And within that 7%, there's a smaller percent that has succumbed to the use of violence. Any percent is too much. But we must remember that the violent minority of a minority are motivated by politics, not religion. As Gallup concluded, what distinguishes the politically radicalized Muslims from the mainstream Muslims is their politics, not their piety. Robert Pape, a University of Chicago political scientist, further confirmed this in his book, Dying to Win, in which he came to the same conclusion, that the actions of terrorists are politically motivated, not through religion. The Tamil Tigers, for example, which are predominantly a Hindu group, used and pioneered the use of suicide bombing, did so for secessionist reasons, not for religious goals. Our opponents would have you believe that there's a take-all-no-winners take clash between Islam and the West, and that Muslims who try to balance their Western values and Islam arrive at a state of cognitive dissonance and are left either mute or crazy by this internal struggle. That description doesn't resonate for me, or for my family, or for my friends, or for my community, because those two aspects of our identity were never in conflict with each other and were never introduced to us as in conflict with each other. I didn't realize that there were people out there who wondered whether people, Muslims like me, existed or could exist until after 9-11. Let me be clear. There are some horrifically violent criminals out there who twist our faith to justify their hate and their violence. But I'm here to tell you they don't speak for Islam. Muhammad Hamdani, a first responder who died on 9-11, speaks for Islam. Hassan Askari, a Brooklyn Muslim who stepped in on the subway and saved a complete stranger who was being physically attacked because he was Jewish, he speaks for Islam. Zainab Selby, through her organization Women for Women International, has assisted over a quarter of a million women across the world. She speaks for Islam. And the entire Muslim community of India, who when the authorities asked them to take the militants who attacked Mumbai in 2008, said resoundingly and collectively, no, we will not let the terrorists be buried with us. The media and those who profit from the narrative of Islam versus the West are never going to tell you my story or the stories of these Muslims who constitute the vast majority of Muslims around the world. But just because you may not hear us, it doesn't mean we're not speaking out. And just because you may not see us on TV, it doesn't mean we don't exist. 
If you vote against the motion, I would argue you're voting against the moderate voices of mainstream Islam and telling the terrorists that you agree with their version. I urge you to vote for the motion. Thank you. Thank you. Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. You have heard the opening statement in support of this motion. Now to speak first against the motion that Islam is a religion of peace. I'd like to introduce Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, a very, very well-known uh, dissident, born in Somalia, fled to the Netherlands where she was a member of the parliament, the Dutch parliament. Now she's in the United States, once again on a, a case of asylum because, Ayan? Um, well, because... I had to live with, basically, I was afraid for my life. Ladies and gentlemen. In the 21st century, in a free country. Ladies and gentlemen, Ayan Hirsan Ali. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm surprised by the motion itself. When I first had it, it reminded me of the academic question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And I'd think, well, if you do the salsa or the cha-cha, not many. <laughs> Why are we not having a motion on is Christianity a religion of peace? Is Judaism a religion of peace, etc.? Because those would be academic motions. Unfortunately, the motion Islam is a religion of peace, is not academic. I respect and admire Ziba Khan, and I want to acknowledge the fact that you indeed are a demonstration of the assimilation of a Muslim individual, a Muslim woman, into Western society, into an American society, that you come from a middle-class family that was very eclectic and respected pluralism. I respect that very much and I admire you for it and I think you are an example to others. However, I disagree with you that you represent Islam or that you speak for Islam. The problem that is inherent in Islam from the time of its foundation up to this moment is who speaks for Islam. And I'll get to that later on. Is it Ziba Khan or is it Faisal Shahzad? who was also a middle-class man, went to business school, married an American woman, had two children, lived just like you, like many of you. And yet he made a different choice based on a combination of piety and politics. And that's what Islam is. And before I go on, let me define the key terms of the motion. First, religion. The most common definition of religion you will find is the universal quest of humans in search, in search of the sacred or the holy. That search is expressed intellectually, it's expressed in practice, it is expressed in fellowship. And you look at a religion like Islam on an intellectual level it was expressed by the founder of Islam as a demolition of all other gods. Polytheism had to end and all humanity had to be united under one God. 
From those of you who are familiar with history, and I think a crowd like this is, you know that no monotheistic religion can be a religion of peace. No monotheistic religion is a religion of peace. And definitely not Islam. Monotheistic religions know periods, lengthy periods of peace, but they also know lengthy periods of war. In terms of practice, yes, in Islam, you practice charity, you go to Hajj, you pray, all of that. But in terms of practice, there's also the expression, there's the concept of jihad. And I find it a pity that Ziba Khan did not mention that concept, which is central to Islam's conquest and Islam's success. The founder of Islam, Muhammad, in his lifetime, conducted 65 campaigns of war that were all successful. And that militaristic history of Islam is well documented. Just go Google it. And if you don't find it on Google, go to all those former empires that were conquered. The combination of a history of empire, of conquest, also leaves a legacy behind. And that legacy is the thrusting together of people of different ethnicities, languages, etc. So even if that empire declines, the likelihood, the likelihood of conflict, of war, is probable. It's high, especially where there is a fault line. That's where Samuel Huntington had a point. That history of militarism, combined with the legacy of empire, those two points alone belie the motion tonight that Islam is a religion of peace. But that's not all. When empires decline, those who are defeated, and the Muslim empire declined, those who are defeated sometimes find themselves in a state of victimhood. That state of victimhood is exploited by the leadership or those self-appointed leaders of Islam. And what do you see? You see a number of people, and I concede it's a minority, who believe that Islam is under siege. A mentality of victimhood tells those who are conquered, who are vanquished, that the problem was caused by external powers, not by us. And that systematic denial within Islam after the 19th century to blame only outsiders, exempt Islam from blame, from the explanation, what went wrong? Yes, it was external. Yes, Muslims were humiliated. Yes, they were conquered. Yes, they were colonized. But how much was also because of the flaws of Islam. And that takes me to the point of absolutism. When the West went into its, Islam, into its scientific revolution, why wasn't it Muslims? Muslims were the first scientists. Arithmetic, logic, etc. They were great. Why didn't they get into that scientific revolution? Why were they left behind? Was it only because of external factors or were there internal flows? That combination of a status of victimhood and the absolutism, the demand that you can never revise or reflect on the Quran, that you can never, never, ever refute what Muhammad said, you can only follow his example. That absolutism combined with that status of victimhood is also 
enlarges the likelihood of, uh, of conflict. And those two combined, like the other two factors, I belie... Your, your time is up. Thank you. That belies the motion. I'll keep my last two factors for the time I have remaining. Thank, Thank you. you. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Square U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Islam is a religion of peace. You have heard from the first two debaters in their opening statements, and now on to the third. I'd like to introduce Majid Nawaz, who is director of the Quilliam Foundation. And he is, in a way, uh, has an amazing biography. Uh, several years back would have been America's nightmare. He was a radical. He was imprisoned in Egypt while on a trip there, though he's born in the UK, was in Egypt and tortured for being a radical, and something happened to you in prison. A 180-degree turn in one sentence. What was it? In one sentence? You, <laughs> yeah. We're talking about four years there. Yeah. <laughs> Amnesty International. But I'll explain that in my hopefully Fair enough. Ladies and gentlemen, Majid Nawaz. Thank you. Thank you. Could I indulge the audience and just ask for a round of applause for Zeba's mum? She's just over there. I think she did a wonderful job. Yeah. <laughs> to raise your daughter to speak Hebrew in the current climate is amazing, and I applaud you. Um, so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I want to uh, begin by just stating what this debate is not about. This debate is not about making excuses for terrorism. I, uh, basically, my career is to challenge extremism and terrorism uh, in the West and also in Muslim-majority countries. I've just flown uh, right in from Pakistan where I've been uh, building the foundations for the first nationwide social movement to challenge extremism and promote democratic values in Pakistan. And I'm proud to announce that just today uh, we gained our 10,000th member on Facebook. So this debate, <laughs> this debate is not about making excuses for suicide bombers, even inside Israel. Uh, we make no apologies and no excuses on this panel for terrorism, for extremism, uh, and for people who kill innocent civilians, including inside Israel. This debate uh, acknowledges, we on our panel, Zeba and myself, acknowledge that Muslims do need to speak out against extremism and to challenge it, and more Muslims need to do that more actively. We acknowledge that Muslims bear a responsibility in reclaiming their faith from those, the minority, who have hijacked Islam and who have captured the public imagination in their definition of Islam. We acknowledge that, and I am, in my, in my own person, a manifestation of that effort, um, as is Zeba in, in the way she was raised. So we acknowledge that as well. This debate, in fact, is an appeal. It's, it's not uh, also, before I move to the fact that it's an appeal, it's also not a threat. So we're not going to argue here tonight that if you don't vote for the motion, that somehow Muslims are going to rise up and attack you for insulting Islam. <laughs> That's not the case. This is an appeal. And it's an appeal to your good sense and your good character and to what you know inside you. This is actually not a debate for Islam at all. This is a debate for peace. And we are not arguing for Islamic peace. We are arguing for Islam to be, with all other religions and all other beliefs and those who have no faith, to be part of the effort to create peace in the world. So this is a debate for peace. It's a debate, and I'm asking you all to vote tonight, not for Islam, but to vote for peace and to help contribute the efforts of all of us around the world who are working for peace. Because there were people like me who spent 13 years of our life working to create hatred. 
I used to believe that Islam is not a religion of peace. In fact, I used to believe that Islam mandates war. I used to believe and propagate across the world in more than three countries that Islam mandates war and mandates the creation of a state that will have at its heart of its foreign policy a policy to create conquest. I called it jihad. I believed Islam was not a religion of peace because I adopted an ideology at 16 years old and stuck with that until my imprisonment and then after I was released from prison when I was 28 years old. By that time I had established this ideology in Pakistan and in Denmark and contributed to its growth in Egypt. But I learnt in prison two things. One was what I'm appealing to you here today and that was when people hand out an olive branch, it does work. People I had considered my enemy, people I had considered the enemy of my people, Amnesty International, with their advocation of human rights that I believed was a tool to colonize the minds of Muslims, adopted me as a prisoner of conscience. And by handing me that olive branch, I recognized that there was goodness in the world, and there were people who, regardless of the provocation they find in the world today, are still willing to fight for peace, and are still willing to redefine the debate. And that's what I'm asking you to do here tonight. Because by redefining the debate, and by insisting that they would not allow my hatred to define for them the way in which they viewed me, they changed my heart. I went on and, and took that message forward and helped establish the world's first counter-extremism think tank in the West, then went into Pakistan to help establish the first nationwide counter-extremism movement in Pakistan. And as I said, we have 10,000 supporters before we even launched of Muslims from Pakistan who are helping us to redefine the debate, who are not allowing the minority of extremists to hijack Islam, to monopolize its definition and then define for us all that this should be a world of war, not just Islam as a religion of war, but as you heard from our co-panelists here on the other side, all religions should be religions of war in their minds whether that's because they want to fight or because they're not believers in religions and they wish to challenge religion from that basis. And so I make an appeal to all of you tonight to help us redefine this debate. And the second thing that happened to me in prison that helped me change my mind was that I had the opportunity, I won't say good fortune because it wasn't really that, but the opportunity to mix with some of the leading founding jihadists of the world inside an Egyptian prison, ironically built by the British. And what I learnt was that I had been extremely arrogant. I had suffered from the failure that I saw here tonight in my respected colleague's presentation. I had failed to contextualise history. And when I was this young and angry 24-year-old who, yes, had grievances, who'd been stabbed at multiple times growing up on the streets of Essex, who had been falsely arrested on a number of occasions because of racial profiling. I was a very angry young man. But I went to men in prison who had been in prison since I was three years old. And then I met them at 24. And they had abandoned their previous terrorist ideology. And I had the arrogance to try and convince them that they had sold out. That they didn't understand that true Islam was a religion of war. And they said to me, young lad, come and sit down. We'll tell you a story or two. And over the course of the four years, after having learnt Arabic, after having memorised half of the Qur'an, after having studied the theology, though myself not being too much of a religious man, I came to the conclusion 
that Islam had been hijacked and abused and politicized by something that I now refer to as Islamism, the modern ideology that owes more to post-World War I European fascism than it does to the traditions of Islam. And these former jihadists, among them the assassins of Egypt's former president, Anwar Sadat, who was killed in 1981, they had come to the same conclusions. And so I appeal to all of you, as my time runs out, there's much more to say, to vote to help us all to redefine this motion, to redefine this world, because only by, by refusing to accept the paradigms that we find imposed upon us can we refute change. And that's exactly how the civil rights movement in America uh, tackled this issue when they were faced with such situations in the past. Thank you for your patience and thank you for your time. Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. And now to speak against the motion, Douglas Murray. He's a best-selling author and founder and director of the Center for Social Cohesion, also a citizen of the United Kingdom, uh, a member of the Church of England until recently. You, you said that your study of the Quran, you said this in print, made you an atheist. That's right. I said Muhammad what? made me an atheist. The, the uh, publisher said at the time, that's, that's a pretty provocative headline. I said, well... Get somebody to do the next one. She said, um, I could find a Catholic who could say Muhammad made me a Catholic. I said, How about trying to make it a three part article and get the third one, somebody saying Muhammad made me a Jew? And that one would be the trouble. Douglas Murray, ladies and gentlemen. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure uh, to be here tonight. I'm sorry to make this panel rather Brit centric after my uh, colleague Majid. This isn't an attempt by. Uh, us to have a British takeover of the old colony or anything like that. Um, uh, but I was coming uh, earlier from my own uh, fallen empire, um, going back to my friend and colleague Ayan's comments earlier, and uh, I was um, reading the papers, I'm sure all of you were doing earlier today. Majid finished his comments by talking about the importance of changing paradigms. I'm not sure this is about paradigms. I think it's about facts. Here are some facts in my newspaper earlier. Um, the Times Square bomber, of course, a man just up the road from here who tried to kill thousands of people. Only, by the way, he didn't manage it because he set the 24-hour timing device to 7 a.m. instead of 7 p.m. 1,900 hours was what it was meant to be. Uh, if he had have got that bit right, thousands of New Yorkers would have died earlier this year again. I see further in the paper um, 12 suspects arrested in France in a network trying to recruit people to go and fight American and other troops in Afghanistan. I turn to another page of the newspaper and the city I've just flown off from this morning, a Muslim London underground worker who was, uh, had written to his wife who's off to try to become a martyr for Allah, as he says. He says, more than anything, I wish Allah to grant me martyrdom. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have to look at facts. We should also just quickly, if I may, refer something to the wording of tonight's debate. Ayan's already mentioned this, but I mean, let me put it this way. You're, you're I'm sure, a liberal-minded New York audience, or at least I hope you are. Um, we'll see. Um, but uh, I imagine that if the motion we had here tonight was Christianity is a religion of peace, we get to the uh, Q&A, perhaps even before, and somebody would say, if the other side were arguing for that, somebody would say, uh, what about the Crusades? Hmm? What about that? And then there'd be some other clever clogs who'd say, um, I, uh, what about that Florida pastor the other week? That was a nasty business. That's Christianity for you. If we'd had uh, tonight, Judaism is a religion of peace. The other side were trying to argue that. 
sure as anything, there'd be people popping up in the hall tonight saying, oh, there's this uh, bit in one of the Old Testament books, really, really bad. Uh, all sorts of massacres going on. Why don't you talk about that? There might even be people trying to say that, uh, that, uh, religion, uh, that the argument that Judaism was a religion of peace couldn't be argued because people would say, look at what Israel is doing. It isn't that a direct response? And so on. So let's not have a debate about Islam and whether or not Islam is a religion of peace without talking about the facts to do with Islam. It's an absurd situation we're in where nothing that anyone does whilst being Muslim is any responsibility of Islam. Yet anything anyone does whilst being a Christian or a Jew is responsibility of all Christians, all Jews. Let's make this as, as, as straightforward as I can. Take the categorization that eminent scholars like Bernard Lewis, Ibn Warak have made. Let's say Islam is a very, very complex thing. Uh, and the best way I can do this in the very short time I have is say you have three Islams. Islam 1, 2, and 3. Islam 1, the Quran and the life of Muhammad uh, and the Hadith. Islam 2, the tradition of the Sharia. Islam 3, what Muslims do now. The first of those things, Islam, the Quran, and so on, is bad. It is bad. There is a lot of violence in it. And what's worse, the peaceful verses are superseded by the violent verses. The violent verses also, sadly, are more numerous in number. Then you've got the life of Muhammad. Again, a bad man. A very bad man, it has to be said. Not a great role model, if you look at it. Uh, it takes child brides, abuses a small girl, uh, multiple wives, uh, himself a warrior, himself a war criminal, himself beheads uh, uh, Jews. Uh, this, I would have thought, would be a signal of not great peacefulness. Um, <laughs> then you've got the tradition of the uh, Sharia. Again, not great peacefulness. Still, no schools of Sharia that people in this hall would want to submit to. And thirdly, what Muslims do now, thankfully, there is some hope in that one. Because most Muslims, thank goodness, I almost said thank God, but uh, <laughs> old habits die hard. Um, uh, most Muslims don't do what those texts say um, because they exercise their judgment as moral beings without having to refer to defunct holy books. Now look, I wish that uh, Zebra and Majid uh, were the spokespeople of Islam. It would be lovely, although in Majid's case it would have taken rather too long if everyone had to go for 14 years preaching the downfall of America and then said, no, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> but well, we, well, we are where we are. Uh, anyhow, I wish they spoke for Islam. It would be great. Uh, but the fact is that tonight, the organisers of this debate asked a number of clerics. None of them would show. Specifically, they wouldn't show and debate against Ayan Hirsi Ali. Um, myself, I don't think they cared. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but no, it's very interesting that. They will not debate time and again. Muslim, the actual leaders of your religion will not debate this. And you're left with people like we have here. The reason why, is, of course, is that the leaders of the religion show such terrible, uh, uh, terrible lessons. Uh, it is not a small thing. It's not as it were a detail. It's not like a wacky Florida pastor that you've got the largest Sunni state of Saudi Arabia, the most important Sunni state in the world, the most extraordinary closed prison of a society. It's not, it's not a detail, it's not a, a one-off nut job that the Shiite Republic of Iran is what it is, led by the people it's led by. That is not an accident, it's not a detail. The thing that worries me is that although tonight we hear from the fellow panelists here 
about how Islam is a religion of peace. The fact is that the people who are making the decisions in the religion, the people who are preaching in the religion, the heads of that religion, people like Sheikh Haradawi who broadcasts anti-Semitic, the most appalling filth every week on the main networks, that is the, the, the faith that is the, the speaking for you guys. I wish that, Zeba, you were on every uh, week on Al Jazeera, but you're not. Karadawi is. The problem is that Islam is an unstable component, as a religion, an unstable component. A thousand years ago, the Mutazilites tried to reform the religion. They were wiped out. The fact is that Islam is many things, many, many things. But to say it's the religion of peace is nonsense. It's to ignore reality. It's to ignore very difficult but necessary facts. Not paradigms, but facts. To say that Islam is a religion of peace is to say something based entirely on hope. It's to elevate a hope into truth. And I hope, as you all know, history teaches us that's a very bad thing to do. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Charles. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We have heard opening statements. We're going to move into round two. Remember how you voted in the beginning. We're going to move into round two. This is an Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We have two teams of debaters arguing out this motion. Islam is a religion of peace. The side arguing for the motion, Zeba Khan and Majid Nawaz, have been uh, make the argument that the extremists do not define Islam. Take away the extremists and you have a religion of peace. The side arguing against, Ayan Hirsi Ali and Douglas Murray, argue it's not about extremists, it's inherent. It's inherent in the tradition, it's inherent in the scripture, and it's inherent in the history. And so the question of, of the, the notion, um, Ayan Hirsi Ali, of this not just being about extremists, you concede that there are extremists, but that's you say, not the problem. What about, what about your opponents? What about your parents? What about Muslims you know who do not adhere to a violent form of religion? Are they, if, the, if there's something about the faith themselves, are they embracing spiritually something that is morally an illusion? Well, my parents and uh, people like my respectful opponents here are ignoring the basic tenets of their religion. When Muhammad, the founder of the religion, called out to all Muslims, and that's how he won most of his wars, by saying, I have been ordered, and all believing men have been ordered to attack and kill and maim anyone unless they testify, unless all men testify to the fact that Allah is the one and only, Muhammad is his messenger, my father disobeys that. Um, well, uh, Majid Nawaz tried to obey that first and then stopped obeying it. But the fact that that scripture is there and that history of militarism is there belies the motion that Islam is a religion of peace. The point I want to make is Islam is a religion, when you take the scripture, that can be employed to wage war. And Islam, as a civilization, has known periods of peace but you cannot, if you pay attention to that history, pay attention to the evidence, continue to say that Islam is a religion of peace. No monotheistic religion is a religion of peace. No monotheistic religion is only a religion of war. It is both. 
but in Islam, and that's why we are debating right. it in the 21st century, there are more occurrences of violence and war and strife and subjection of women than there are in other religions. And my point, our point is, let's not deny it, because by denying it, we don't solve the problem. Let's admit it, and then as intelligent people, take it from there. What is to blame on external factors? Let me, let me what go is to, your, to let blame me go to your on opponent, the inside? who was an extremist, now an anti-extremist. Majid, respond. So, um, I... Forgive me for the assumption, Ayan. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the panel with you, by the way, but forgive me for the assumption that do you speak Arabic? Do you, do you, have you studied Arabic grammar? And, and it, I, I, I'm asking for a purpose, which if you do uh, give me the chance to explain, I will. But, but first of all, just let me ask you that question. I don't speak it as well as you do. And I want oh, to I know, know what the, where the question is going before I give a full right. answer okay. to that. <laughs> if you be, want me to quote the Quran, I will. You may be surprised. That I don't <laughs> know if I speak well or not. But the reason I'm asking is that you just quoted a hadith of the Prophet. And you actually really did exaggerate what he said. And, and I'll quote to you the exact hadith in Arabic and then translate it. Now, what you quoted it's actually is, the Quran, but go on. Uh, well, the hadith it's is, chapter 2, 191 to 193. Now, what you quoted and in the translation was, kill and maim, and, and you went on and explained. Now, actually, uqatil means to fight. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good hadith. What I'm saying is, when we're translating, let's try and be accurate. Uh, and that brings me to the point. And that is, that I've just thought of a word to describe this, and it's just come to me, so thank you, because I'm going to use it forever onwards. And that word is suspended intelligence. There's a tendency, when discussing Islam, to suspend the tools that we have learnt and studied, that you have studied as well, that we use to analyse every other piece of scripture and literature in the world. And that is that we recognise that texts do not speak for themselves. We recognise that when we interpret scriptures and texts and books and poetry, that they are contextualised, that we have methodologies to approach them. When we're reading Shakespeare, when we're reading anything, we recognise that there's a way to interpret texts and there are schools of thought and differences over how to approach texts. Now, if we contextualise Martin Luther and say the Reformation was a good thing, Despite the fact that he said, kill and slay the peasants, wherever you find them, when they followed Thomas Munzer, when he was calling for not just breaking away from the papal authority, but also for rebelling against the monarchies and the dictators that they found themselves in, Martin Luther sided with the tyrants against Munzer and said, kill the peasants wherever you find them. Despite that, I'm prepared to say the Reformation was a good thing. And the reason I'm prepared to say that is that Martin Luther must not be judged by the standards of civilization that we, after an accumulation of thousands of years, have arrived at. He must be judged by the standards of civilization that were around during his time. And that's how society I, evolves. Yeah. And it, we recognize that for every other faith and for every other piece of literature, yet when it comes to Islam, somehow we want to suspend... Douglas Murray, Douglas Murray, now, come that, on. And quote the come on a moment, Uh Yes, we read things in their context. I mean, you read we Chaucer in context. Chaucer doesn't have followers. It doesn't have 1.4 billion people who believe everything or are meant to believe everything. I, I suppose Martin Luther does have followers. If you it? allowed me to speak, yeah. I'd address your Luther point. Yeah. I'll get there, I promise. Right. Um, you, don't, we, we don't, you don't have followers of Shakespeare who insist on, uh, or are meant to be insist on line by line following everything Shakespeare did and believing everything he wrote. That's because it's literature. Actually, what's happening, Majid, is your thing, you, point, you put your finger on the problem. Absolutely. It's not us that isn't applying the rigorous critical faculties. We're applying them to the Quran as we would to any other work of literature. You're not, because you can't. And, and, and the final thing what, on that, what do you if, mean he Majid, can't? if Majid... What, what do you mean that he can't? He, well, because Majid knows very well... Majid that is he, a believer. 
the and believers are not allowed to contextualize the Sorry, text. Can I, is that can true? I bring you back to my question. What but, about wait, is that, is that point if true? You were, what, what, if, if you were if allowed to contextualize, you would say is, some of the things that right. Muhammad did is crap. If, you would say <laughs> some of yeah. the things that Muhammad did is crap. You cannot contextualize. Is that true? No, it's not true. Now, can I say... What do you think of Muhammad taking a six-year-old as a bride? What do you think of that? I don't think that's a particularly good idea. However, what I would say is that there are many, many people in history that have done such a thing. And what we're talking about here is the failure to contextualize actions for the standards of their time. And I'll come back to the point I made, because Douglas, you didn't address it, despite your protestations that you were going to. Now let me just ask you again. Martin Luther was a fundamentalist, wasn't he? Absolutely. All Christians will agree with you that he was a fundamentalist. Can I now answer my question? Please. Yes, you can. (laughs) And then I want to bring him to If there were currently Lutherans, there are Lutherans around, you meet them occasionally in Scandinavia and so on, very nice, (laughs) very nice it is, and peaceable guys they are by and large. If, however, there was a large proportion of Lutherans somewhere in Scandinavia that started blowing up non-Lutherans, or no, sorry, let's be absolutely right, started massacring peasants, do you think the people would say, hang on a minute, let's not criticise Martin Luther. He did that by the standards of his time. We shouldn't criticise his followers all that much. We shouldn't point out what he said. No, we just say, you know, don't go and massacre peasants. Full stop. It was rubbish at Douglas, the time. You're it's missing rubbish the point. now. It's the same with you're the Quran. The point. If you're failing to judge... <laughs> no, let me bring in your appointment. I just wanted to point out in terms of when we're talking about the Quran and saying that we can't contextualise it, that's simply not true. That's that is a debate that's hot in, in the community amongst Muslim scholars and amongst Muslims themselves. We're debating that very question. Is the Quran a living document? Much like it's similar in, in uh, comparison to, the, say, the Constitution and the, and the debates that happen around that. Excuse me, around that. Um, the fact is, scholars say that, you know, when you look at the Quranic Arabic, there can be, you know, two, three, four, five, six interpretations for every word. There's only certain things in the Quran that scholars agree are concrete, like the concept of God, afterlife, things like that. But beyond that, there is a wide, wide range of interpretation, which is why there is a history that not many people look at, and that's part of the problem, that nobody's actually looked at the history of debate within Islam about every sort of aspect that can come to mind. I disagree with that. The reason why I disagree with it, it would be more accurate, Ziba, if you said the scholars that you find attractive say that. But there are a bunch of scholars with a great number of following in Islam take, and all of them are self-appointed, by the way, because there is no hierarchy, there is no seminary of Islam, except uh, a University of Al-Azhar, and we know the products of Al-Azhar. But there are scholars like Bin Laden who say we have to take the Quran. He's not a scholar by anyone's well, he measure. has the greatest following. He has That's the greatest true. following. The Islamic Brotherhood, it's Hassan al-Banna. When you look at the Sunni Islam, when you look at Ayatollah Khomeini in the 20th century, the most influential guy of Shia Islam, another self-appointed scholar, you have all of it. Sheikh bin Baz. He has the greatest following. Sheikh al-Qaradawi. Maybe these are individuals that are not attractive to you, but then it would be more accurate if you stated that. They are attractive to many Muslims, not thousands, but in the millions. And what they say, and that's why they're influential, is they challenge every single Muslim individual. Are you a true Muslim? If you are a true Muslim, 
you live by what the Quran dictates, you follow the example of the Prophet right. Muhammad. And, their and those though. scholars who insist on that are far more influential, yeah. far more powerful so, than you, Ayan, you soft-spoken, you wonderful, cuddly scholars. Well, imagine that was. So, Ayan, Ayan, you just quoted uh, Bin Laden as a scholar um, and Hassan al-Banna as a scholar. Bin Laden, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a, an engineer, a qualified engineer. So not, don't know him. Why don't you define who is a scholar? don't know his history. He's a qualified engineer who comes from one of the richest construction families in Saudi Arabia and was educated in the elite private schools of Switzerland and Saudi Arabia. Hassan al-Banna that you refer to was a school teacher. And in fact, what you find common with all of the movements that you're worried about and that I'm worried about and we're all worried about are that they are founded by people who do not have a theological background. Now, for all we think of al-Azhar and their very conservative views, what we don't find is that al-Azhar produces the likes of bin Laden and Hassan al-Banna, or even Maududi, the founder of the Jamaat Islami in the Indian subcontinent. Maududi was a journalist. Sayyid Qutb, the founder of modern-day jihadism, was a literary critic who came to America on a scholarship in the 1950s to study literature. He was not a theologian. So coming back to the point, Why don't please, you name Ayan, a number don't of define who are influential for the whole world who a Muslim scholar is. Because actually the people you refer to were not qualified theologians. But don't you touch on the problem, by, by admitting this, don't you touch on the problem that is inherent in Islam after the death of Muhammad, that the problem of who speaks for Islam has not been resolved. It could be the two of you, yeah, it could be Bin Laden, it could peace. be Al-Qaradawi, it could be Faisal Al-Shahzad. Al I, 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 I want to go directly to the question the he just Please asked. What does that have to Seriously. do with, with Islam being a religion of peace? If you're, you're, you're almost making the argument that Islam is what you want it to be, depending on how you behave. So if you behave peacefully, is it not a religion of peace to you? That is a brilliant question. When you, you can start by saying Islam is something to, a different thing to 1.57 billion people. And from that general point, you can reduce it to what is it that unifies them. And ultimately, you will get to the Quran and the Hadith. The Quran, the Hadith, the Day of Judgment. The belief in the Day of Judgment. And if you take those three concepts, then it's far from a religion of peace. Because you look, first of all, not only at the content of the Quran, in context, fine, I'm willing to contextualize it, but what if other believers are not and they're influential? What if I want to read Muhammad's practices simply as a matter of history, another great figure in history? But more Muslims, millions of Muslims, don't want to do that right, and so, really so want to follow his practices. You are what if more and more Muslims invest in the hereafter more than they invest in life? then we have a problem. And, and that's why I ask you to vote against the motion. It cannot be only a religion of peace. Because if it Douglas were only a religion of peace, if it were perfect, why would we have this debate? Douglas, why given, would we talk, given the be long run that I had, can you be 15 be seconds? Be seconds I'm, I promise. Yeah. Um, Majid uh, trying to imply that the whole extremist problem is a sort of misreading by engineers and literary critics. Unfortunately, that's simply not the case, hasn't been historically in Islam, and isn't now. Um, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who, uh, who Ayan mentioned earlier, was not a self-trained engineer, rich boy like Bin Laden, unfortunately, and managed to hurtle a very developed, distinguished culture back in time, in 1979, and 
hurtled this country back into the state it's currently in under these uh, cloaked dictators. Okay. The Grand Mufti yeah. of Egypt is right, not we, we, a self we see where you're going, and, and yet he talks to the other that all Muslims Majid. should go and fight the Israelis. Majid. So, sorry, on, on Khomeini, I acknowledge Khomeini is a trained theologian, and the fact is he came in the 70s, Douglas, and that proves something. What was he so famous for? Khomeini was recognized for bringing a revolution in Shiite theology. And what was the revolution? Those of you who have studied this will know that the revolution was that up until him, Shiites had been avowedly religiously secular because they believed no one had the right to rule in God's name until the Messiah came and let them wait for that Messiah until the end of time. Khomeini changed that and turned it on his head. And if that proves something, it proves one thing. And that is it was not, in, it was not consistent with Islamic Shiite tradition. What he did was a very modern revolution influenced by his studies in Europe and influenced by modern European fascism. He broke from tradition and that's why it was called a revolution. He was not a continuance of Shiite it's tradition. It's the fault of the Europeans, in other words. It's no, no, external. No, 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 no one's saying... Remember the no, no, come on. I want to bring Zeba in. Zeba, I want to ask yeah. you something about reforms for Islam. Does Islam need reform? It needs a renaissance. It doesn't need a reform. Reform in the sense, and the reason I say that is because we have to be careful of our terminology. If we say reform as in reformation, we're thinking of a Christian context. Um, where you had the Protestants and Martin Luther saying, rejecting the Catholicism and, and the Pope. But the thing is, in Islam, there is no Pope. There is no centralized authority. So there, there can't be a reformation in that sense. What there needs to be a, is a return to genuine Islamic principles, which have been not studied, have not been in, enforced, and, and, and are forgotten. Um, so it, it, it's, it's not exactly that. But a return to genuine Islamic principles is exactly what Al-Qaeda is advocating. No, that's not it's actually what they're... Exactly no, that's actually incorrect. A return, a rebirth, Al-Qaeda a revival. The difference between Al-Qaeda is Wait, uh, exactly it, what sorry, all those extremist organizations are. The radio cannot make sense of two voices, and I'm talking now, too, at the same time. So I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to make that point, and then I want to hear back. So think 20 seconds. When you look at the extremist organi the organizations that we've come to call extremists, what they're advocating when they answer the question, what went wrong? We had this empire. We lost it. How do we regain it? Their answer is a rebirth. Let's go back to the origins, a revival of it. Is that what you want, Ziba? No, they actually covert the language for their own political purposes. Al-Qaeda is, is not calling for a return to Islam or to original Islam or anything like that. They're actually using Islam as a cover for their political grievances. When you look and ask Muslims, ask 1.5 billion Muslims, when you look at the mainstream, they're 90%. They don't, they're peaceful and, and fine. When you look at the politically radicalized, when you ask them, what do they fear most? They say Western domination and occupation. But when you ask mainstream Muslims what they fear, they say, economic issues, unemployment. There's a clear difference. And so they're not, what we, we can determine from that is it's not religion because religiosity between the two is indistinguishable. How pious they are, indistinguishable. It's the one factor that makes the difference is what they focus on and their grievances against, perceived grievances against the West. Douglas Murray. But don't we get back to one of the core problems which you still haven't addressed, which is the life of Muhammad and his teaching? Which is as follows, is that if a Christian group decides to go back to the teachings of Christ, you know, the worst stuff they find is the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. 
um, there you can find one verse where Jesus is said, I think the Gospel of St. Matthew, to have said, I come not to bring peace but a sword. But the rest of it is all love thy neighbour and all that sort of stuff. If you're a Christian group looking to go back to the sources of Christianity, you just find a lot of, well, hippie stuff for a lot of modern people. Um, um, so, so what is it about this religion we're talking about tonight that you say is a religion of peace, that when people go back to the origins, they find a founder who was violent teaching violence? See, this, this, this comes back to what you mean by people going back to the origins. And I refuse, as, as does Zeba, and as we're asking for all of you to do, is to refuse uh, for Islam to be hijacked and monopolized by the bin Ladins of this world who want to tell you what it means to go back to the original sources. Now, if that was the case, then I ask you, why is it that in Bangladesh, where there was a free and fair election, the Islamist party lost roundly? They completely lost the elections. In Pakistan, where there were recent elections, the uh, Islamist alliance in the north that came to prominence after the occupation of Af Afghanistan, uh, they completely lost all their seats. So the Muslims in two of the most populous Muslim-majority countries in the world, as, like, as is the case in Indonesia, whenever they have a chance to vote, they do not vote for the Islamist extremists. And time and time again in elections across Muslim-majority states, they have proven that their interpretation of Islam, and they are the majority, is not the interpretation of Douglas, Ayan, and Bin Laden. Now, I don't want to be in that camp. All right. I want to I take a little break and move on to the topic and the status of women in Islam. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. This is an Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. We're at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts in New York City. Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. We have two teams of two arguing for the motion, Zeba Khan and, uh, sorry, and Majid Nawaz, and arguing against the motion, Ayan Hirsi Ali and Douglas Murray. One of the here in the West, one of the issues that is very complicated for people in coming to terms with what they think Islam is, is the status of women in Islam. I'd like to go to Yuzeba Khan. Take that on. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the perception is that a lot, for a lot of people out looking at the Muslim world and Muslim-majority countries, is that Muslim women are somehow, they aren't... Um, they're, they're, they're subjugated that they don't um, to a point where they are intimidated to ask for their rights and to, to demand them, but that's not the case. I mean, when you look at all, when you look across uh, Muslim-majority countries, if you look at Iran, for example, where there's zero gender gap in education, by the way, um, men and women enjoy the same amount of education. Obviously, when you're, that, when you're at that level of education, you're, you're aware of what your rights are and what, you're, what you are demanding. And so, you know, in, in Iran and places like that, they are demanding their rights. They are um, pushing for them. Um, in places like Afghanistan or Pakistan, where the, where, where the gender gap is larger, um, that gap obviously needs to be filled. But there are women who are pushing there as well. There, it's not um, – it's, it's women that are stepping up and taking the lead on this. Other side response? Ayan Hersili. Well – when I try to define Islam as a religion, religion is expression. What you find in the Quran is expression after expression, verse after verse, and also in the Hadith that women are subordinate to men, that they have 
a guardian, they need to have a guardian. Their testimony is worth half of that of men. In, they can only inherit what, half of what their brother inherits. When it comes to sexual offenses, women are the ones who get in reality where Sharia is implemented, and that is not only the practical side of Islam, but also the fellowship side of Islam, everywhere where Sharia is implemented. And there are more places in the world today where Sharia as a family law is implemented, and where it's not implemented on a political level, but in all of those places you see a subjugation of women. You see honor killings. You see women who are denied education. If you look on a global level, the levels of illiteracy among women in the Middle East is appalling. That's not something that I'm telling you because I'm, you know, whatever. Uh, I misunderstand Islam, but that is report after report. And the latest one is the United Nations uh, uh, UNDP Human Development Report that was first published in 2002 and that was again published in 2003, 2004. And if you follow these reports, this is empirics. This is not... Uh, something that I'm imagining, the situation of women in the Middle East in Muslim countries is dire. And the principles, the principles that underlie it and the practices are Islamic. It's Sharia law in action. And the appalling, the nightmare, the nightmare is women who have fled those countries, who are now in the West, citizen, American citizens, European citizens, are subjected to parts of Sharia law. And Ziba, I think that denying that kind of, not just as a matter of debate, but I then try to question where does your solidarity lie as a woman who grew up in a free country, a free woman, and as vocal as you are, shouldn't you be more solidar with them? I am. I am. I don't want to, the, the, I absolutely am, and as all women should be, and actually all human beings should to, to demand the rights of equality. In fact, most Muslims want equal rights for, their, for the women in their societies. And if, you, and if it goes to, just go to the research, go to the polls, go to the research on what it says. When you ask men, should women have equal rights? Majority in, 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 in the country surveyed, in, in, in the Gallup survey, said yes, they should have equal rights, including in Saudi Arabia. Yes, just, um, I want to acknowledge that there a lot more needs to be done and a lot more needs to be said about uh, eliminating some of the practices that you refer to, Ayan. And I, I, I recognize uh, that there are practices in Muslim-majority societies across the world that are rep repugnant, not just to a Western mind, but generally to anyone, any decent, rational human being. Um, but I want to approach this being a man, uh, and the first man on the panel to comment on this question. Great. I want to approach this from a slightly different angle, and that is this, that uh, many of you in the audience are men, and if, if the law of average was to, to, to fall true, then you'd be probably around 50%. Now, how many of you uh, would be comfortable with your spouse, your wife, as your boss at the same time? Uh, and it may sound, you know, it may actually be a truism because for many people in a marriage, the boss is the wife. But the reason I'm asking that question is that even in times like today, many men find that uncomfortable to be married to their boss. And yet, Ayan, who referred to these practices that were repugnant to us, and said that they are sourced in Islam. The founder of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, his boss, his first wife, was his boss. And many people don't know that. And so what I want to uh, demonstrate by this point is that it's a complex matter. There are practices in Muslim-majority societies that we need to reform, but it's too simplistic to trace them back to the life of a man who lived 1,400 years ago 
and in many of his practices was quite revolutionary for his time, and in others was like every other man during his time. So the fact that he referred to, Douglas referred to the fact that he had, uh, that he had a bride that was underage is something which we can now look back on and say, that was an awful practice. But we, just as we look back on, on many things that Romans did and say, that was an awful practice, just as we look back on many things that Martin Luther did and said, that was an awful practice. But we don't judge these men by All the right. standards that we have let's today. Bring, let's bring in Douglas Murray. No, 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 we do, and we should. Um, we should, Majid. And may I say, it's a bit too cutesy to compare a man who raped a nine-year-old girl repeatedly with uh, men being, you know, kind of, you know, the wife's a bit of the master of the household and so on. A bit too cutesy and a bit too much avoiding the issue, which is this, that this is actually a very real concern which doesn't just apply in mid-seventh century Arabia. But today, here and now, in Britain, in my own country, we now have... Uh, thanks to, the, uh, to, to an arbitration act put into a law in the 1990s, whereby people can uh, have uh, civil disputes arbitrated uh, under, under laws that they, they, they can decide on, that we now have Sharia courts in Great Britain. And the Sharia courts that in Br Great Britain are operated by people who are actually uh, clerics. They are um, uh, religious authorities. There's one at the moment, you know, well, Siddiqui in, uh, in, in Leicestershire. Uh, now, uh, now, this man runs a set of Sharia courts. A couple of years ago, it turned out that we, we found out a little bit about the sort of thing he was, he was deciding. And sadly, again, it's not reformist stuff, because when you go back to the Sharia, people take the lessons from it, and they make judgments like the following. Six women. Six women who had gone to the Sharia courts because they were being physically abused by their husbands. Uh, they were persuaded to drop the cases because this should be a matter between a Muslim woman and her Muslim husband and the Sharia court. This should not be a matter for the police in Great Britain in 2008. That stinks. What's more, there was in another case, a local man, a local Muslim man died. His will was arbitrated by Sharia because that was, that was what happens now in 21st century Britain. And the arbitration of this man's will gave half the inheritance to the daughters as to the sons of the man because that's what you have in the Quran. But so it's all very well to say... just that actually said that he agrees with you that this stuff needs to yeah, change. But the point is, is that when you look at the courts that are doing this, when you look at the religious authorities, when you look at the clerics, the judgments they're making, those are the kinds of judgments. I wish that Majid would get some clerics on his side who could set up rival Sharia courts that didn't decide that women were second-class citizens. But sadly, at the moment, that is the case. So, Douglas, actually, the irony was, that, as you know well, that the person who came out most publicly in support of those regrettable <coughs> Sharia courts in the UK uh, was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And we at Quilliam opposed their creation. And actually, many Muslims in Britain do oppose their creation because it raises the question. Islam has never had a clergy. It's never had a pope. And so when you try and institute Sharia courts as law, the question arises, whose Sharia do you follow? Now, that's an internal debate that's going on and raging and that I am part of in Pakistan, for example, because there isn't one version of Sharia and everything you've referred to is bad. We condemn these practices, but the fact is we can't call them, we can't be reductionist, essentialist, simplistic, lack nuance and call it Sharia because there isn't one Sharia, as you well know, just as there isn't one reading of Shakespeare. All right, I want to I want to I want to move on. And when we come back we're going to take questions from the audience. All right, so we're going to go to questions from the audience now and if you raise your hand, what I'll do is uh, take a cluster of questions and then uh, start uh, presenting them to the to the panel. And I just want to remind you if you'll get a microphone, please stand up and hold it about two fists away from from your mouth so that the radio can pick you up. And please uh, please keep it uh, as terse as possible on the right against the wall there 
and blue shirt here and eyeglasses and green. All right. So you'll get 30 seconds to ask your question. It makes me nervous that you've got something written down on a piece of paper. Under 30 seconds, I promise. All right. Go ahead. Zeba, in your opening remarks, you said that Islamic terrorists are motivated by politics, not religion. Considering that Islamic terrorists make up a majority of suicide terrorists in the world today, what's happening to Muslims politically that isn't happening to any other major religious group that can account for the disproportionate amount of terrorism coming out of the Islamic world? Bingo. That was a good question. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is the model. Yeah, that's, that was a great question. Um, your number, I, I'm going to take the questions oh, and then sorry. number two. Yeah. Yes, I'm ready for you. Sir. Oh, I'm sorry there. With the microphone. Yes, you. Sir. My question was relatively similar, but I'll make it. This has to do with the Muslim community's reaction to suicide bombings. Um, you stated there's 1.5 billion Muslims, and yet the silence of this community on suicide bombings, the justification, the rationalization, the, the wiggles from the community, from the religious community, from the Muslim states, Arab states and Muslim states, is something that in the West we find puzzling. How would uh, the panelists react to that? Thank you. And third question? I hope this isn't too naive, but if religion is, if Islam is not a religion of peace, is it possible for it to become one? Well, I think that's a great question, actually. Um, I was trying to get at that with the reform issue, but I just think you put it far more eloquently. So. Um, I'm going to take all those questions because I thought they were all good. Seba, do you want to take the response to the first one? Basically, why the preponderance of terrorism, the questioner is saying, is committed by Muslim extremists. Why are we not seeing that happening from other groups? Um, so what I don't, I can't say is I know that the, it's a complicated question. And so you have, you have history involved. You have different factors that contribute to the answer. What I can say for sure, just based on looking at the studies that come out, is that the level of religiosity, the level of piety of violence, of, of terrorists, um, compared to mainstream Muslims is virtually there's no difference. So it's, it's literally when you ask them how, how practicing they are, how, how, how often they attend uh, services, things like that, it's literally the same. So that can't be the distinguishing factor. The, but we, what we do know, as I mentioned earlier, is when you ask them, the one big difference is when you ask them what they fear the most. And they say uh, their perceived uh, idea of Western domination, which is very similar to what we hear from our opposition, a perceived fear of Islamic domination. And so when you compare that to the mainstream, who just want to get a job? Would the, other side, uh, would the other side like to respond to that question as well? Or to the answer that you heard? And if not, we'll move on. Well, I'll move on. Okay. <laughs> Can I just add something? Sure. No, yeah, sorry. Um, there's also, I think just to add something, that... that um, the preponderance has a lot to do with um, the spread of a certain ideology that I refer to as Islamism that has arisen in the post-colonial context and that was exported to the Middle East through uh, geopolitics. Now, what happened was that there was a, a need for a cause to resist against uh, colonialism. And Britain 
was a secular liberal country. The cause of the ideology that, that the Arabs adopted, who were resisting initially, was Arab socialism, Ba'athism. And that morphed into Islamism, which owes much of its origins to Arab socialism. And so what we find is that the spread of this ideology, pretty much like how post-World War I Europe, with the identity crisis that emerged after the Weimar Republic, led to the growth of fascism in Europe, with fascism in Italy, Nazism in Germany, and, and totalitarian Stalinism in the USSR, we see the same thing playing out post-empire in the Middle East. So what it's related to is the spread of this ideology that has hijacked the minds of many young Muslims. And yes, Muslims need to do more to challenge this ideology. We are trying to convince them of that, but this is a very modern phenomenon. I remind you, Khomeini is a modern phenomenon, and he created a revolution where he flipped Shiite theology on its head, as, as are the others. Bin Laden, Sayyid Qutb, they are all modern phenomena. Okay, Majid, you have awakened the other side on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because... Majid, what you're saying is Islamism is invented by the British. Islamism has nothing to do with Islam. External, external, external. Those four Muslims who are seduced with the Quran and the activities of Muhammad, their own culture, their own convictions, their own history, they have, you know, they are only the victims. Ideas inspire. Ideas unite. Ideas people bring together. And Muhammad succeeded first and foremost in uniting a disparate Bedouin desert Arab group of people. And they unified and they conquered. And when it worked, it was all Islam. When Muslims were successful, when they conquered lands, it was all great. It was Islam. Now that we are faced with this problem, it's Islamism. It was created by the British okay, Empire. Well, I, I, I just want that, the yeah. other side. I don't think we will ever be able to address this issue if we systematically refuse to acknowledge. And that is what that side of the no. panel is doing. Uh, so let me finish it. Yeah. To systematically systematically refused to acknowledge the flaws of Islam. I grew up as a Muslim. I left Islam. Why did I do it? Because I couldn't hide away from the blemishes. And I believe we can improve that. I can believe we can inspire young Muslims and the youth bulge. There are millions and millions of young Muslim men under the age of 30. That in itself so is a source of violence. I, Without I wanna, it being Muslim, we can inspire them if we can only acknowledge can that part of the problem no, is us, uh, yeah. not just no, the British. Empire. I'm not saying it's the fault of the British. If I was going to say that, I would, would have joined a very successful what British has law firm. What Islamism got to do with Islam? I'm, I'm, I'm saying to you, I would have been a lawyer and I would have got on with my life. I'm taking responsibility for that and I'm trying to get others to take responsibility for the growth of Islamism within Muslim minds Where and challenge that. Islamism so no one's blaming the British and no one's claiming the second question, The second question that. was on the topic of, and we, you almost got to it in your last answer, uh, Majid, but uh, the second question was where is the clear-cut, broad condemnation of terrorism from Muslim leaders? Yeah, so um, there, there have been many, many such uh, fatwas or pronouncements against suicide bombings. Uh, many, in many cases, they're not reported. There does need to be more. However, I'll give you an example of why in some cases there aren't more. Now, recently we at Quilliam publicized a fatwa by Dr. Tahir al-Qadri against terrorism, uh, a no ifs, no buts condemnation of suicide bombing and terrorism that Douglas, always a pleasure to speak with you on the panel, supported um, and was quoted in the press as supporting Dr. Tahir al-Qadri's fatwa against terrorism. Now, the reason why there aren't uh, many more such examples, though there are uh, quite a few, is because Prior to Dr. Tahir al-Qadri uh, issuing this fatwa, his colleague, who was also from the same way of thinking, was assassinated in Pakistan, was killed by a suicide bomber in a mosque where all the other congregants who were praying were also blown to smithereens 
because he had the guts to simply give a sermon in that mosque condemning suicide bombings. And so this is why many people are scared because it takes guts, I tell you, to go into Pakistan and try and challenge these extremists. That's a country that doesn't have much rule of law. It's a country that's struggling against the so-called Pakistani Taliban from taking over a third of their country. And they're fighting that fight on the front lines. And there are those who are brave enough just to give a speech to condemn terrorism and they're blown to smithereens in their mosque while praying. And, and, and surely they're religious people. They were Imagine. praying in a mosque, I, 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 You I, did support that fatwa, though, didn't I, I, you? I did. It's the only time I've ever done a book review of a fatwa. Um, um, <laughs> uh, the, um, I'm sorry to say this, Imagine. You seem to have just proved our point. Yes. Am <laughs> I... Please explain. Is it... Is it I mean, I, I'm very grateful. It's a very important and very interesting question why more people don't stand up. I much admire Al-Qadri for that fatwa, as I have other people who have stood up. But the number of times I've spoken to folks behind closed doors and so on, and you say, why aren't you saying anything? They, they say, because if I do speak up, I'll be killed. Well, I address you again, ladies and gentlemen, for the motion. No, but <laughs> hold on. I'm sorry, sorry. Right, hang on, hang on, hang on. How, how on earth, how on earth does fear of being killed in Pakistan by a minority faction of extremists prove Islam is not a religion well, of peace. Let me put it this way. Let I mean, me Douglas, put it this it way takes, then. No, sorry, sorry. I've got to, because really what you've just said is really quite absurd and I've got to clarify. It takes one person to kill all of us here. One person in a suicide bombing. Now if we were scared of saying what we're saying now because of that one person, it doesn't mean all of us love war and hate peace in any way whatsoever. It means we all fear that one person who could walk through that door with a suicide bomb. But Magic, jacket, but magic to if, if we were That's discussing Quakerism here tonight, does anyone think that when a Quaker said, I'm quite fearful about speaking up against certain things, might say, come on, this only happens with Islam. There is no other major faith for that in the to world be true, today Douglas, where it is the case be, that for, people for are that. fearful of addressing religion because they're afraid they'll be killed. That it's to be only true. Islam. And that, we're saying I'm afraid a of being killed by apostates. Yes. And many of you who came here tonight came under unusual circumstances. I'm not in government. I'm not a powerful person. I'm a citizen. Just, I mean, just Can a you explain what you mean by unusual circumstances? Unusual circumstances. You went through metal detectors to come to a debate in New York. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, talk that, about that's quickly. because it takes one I'm person to get through those metal detectors and blow us up. It doesn't mean the majority of let, people are terrorists. Let me finish. Let me finish. The, part, the people that I am protected against, and you as an audience too, the individual who wants to kill me because I'm an apostate of Islam is inspired inspired to do that from the scripture of Islam, the example of the Prophet Muhammad, the clergy that pre preached to him, and the reward he will get in the hereafter Ayan, that is promised is in the Quran. All of that is Islamic. The sooner you admit that, I tell you what he's the sooner you admit yeah. that, the sooner he's I can get rid of my bodyguard. He's inspired. I'll tell you what he's inspired. Yeah. Michael, this, this, I want to have the last word on this point because I want to go back to the young lady's question. Sure. So I tell you, he's inspired by the very same interpretation of Islam that you have. He's not inspired by Islam. He's inspired by your interpretation of it, that is Bin Laden's interpretation I'm of it. Sorry. That is Sayyid Kukul's interpretation of it. And I've got to say one last thing. No, no, because I've got to say one last thing. The, 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 the thing is, you're not the one, the only one on this panel. I have an Al-Qaeda death threat on my head too because I'm saying what I'm saying. And what I'm saying is that, and I've been attacked in Pakistan physically for saying this. What I'm saying is, enough to extremism, enough to terrorism, let's separate Islam from extremism and disempower the minority of extremists who are trying to hijack a good faith. Douglas, you, Douglas, you've had death threats as well. Minority. 
You have also had death threats. For, for sure. I mean, one of the points about this there is everyone gets death threats. Well, I mean, it's just an unfortunate thing. I think Dave and I are going to leave the I mean, as I say, no. again, I think, I think it speaks for itself. I hope no one threatens a chair. Can you, re- can you repeat the question that I liked so much? Yeah. If Islam is not a religion of peace, is it possible for it to become one? My answer is yes, on condition that. First of all, it's Islam is not a religion of peace, and I hope that we've demonstrated here tonight that it's not. Can it become a religion of peace? Yes, if a number of conditions are met. But what is it for all of the people who practice it peacefully? But let me, let me but, complete but, but, the condition. What is that faith that and they're practicing that? that? That's the part that I'm not finding in your explanation. Why are we having, again, over and over again, first of all, in my view, no monotheistic religion because there's that divider between we and they and because when that's unified, when there are so many factors within every monotheistic religion that make it inherently aggressive. It's not only Islam. But there are a number of factors that in the 21st century combine. Again, there's the history of militarism and the awareness of that. There's the victim status. There's the youth bulge. Let's not forget that. There's the revival of that theology, the revival of the example of the Prophet Muhammad, the investment in the, in the hereafter. And you say a lot of people practice the religion in peace. What we know is that a lot of people are passive and are actually not practicing their faith, are not practicing Islam. Who are you to say who's practicing their faith and who's not? Let me finish. It's not not for you to decide. I'm the Muslim. You're not. But let me let me let me finish. Let me finish. You are not practicing. You are not practicing. Are you Shaykh? Let me say, Shaykh, you are not practicing. Let's hear what she says. Please, let's hear what her point is. You are not practicing. Chapter 2 of the Quran, verse 191 and 193. And slay them wherever you find them, and drive them out of places whence they drove you out, for persecution of Muslims is worse than the slaughter of the non-believers. Chapter 2, you are there not, be no compulsion in not. religion. Yeah. Chapter so, two, okay. Well, each that, community, okay. which is given direction that. as it follows, com- all of you compete in the performance which, of which good This could go on for a very long time. We have so many verses. No, no, no. But that proves my well, point. Let me let that one person speak point. at a time. If you, you read the peaceful... I you, start again because I was talking. That proves my point. If you read from the Quran and you say it's a religion of no compulsion and you believe that that verse is practiced by a person like you, you will concede that there are other Muslims can who I, read the I verse that I just quoted and be inspired to engage in acts of violence. And by the way, the verse that you just read, it has a latter part that says, except the unbelievers. Sure, I'm sure. Every, every part does. <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to so, complete no, no, I, let Seba, let Seba answer this. Um, sorry, I'm, I, what was the last point? Well, my last point was that it, it is both, it, it's not just a religion of peace, it's also a religion of war, and both verses prove it. Okay. But do you want to respond to that, Sabah, or do you want to I pass? Think I'll come back. Okay, yeah. Douglas. That is an important one. Ayan and I and people who, who make some of the points we make are often accused of taking bits of the Quran out of context. I think you've just seen a very good example of it from the other side. I'm not saying that that isn't a good verse to live one's life by. One cannot just simply quote the verse about there being no compulsion in religion. As though, it doesn't, as though it doesn't have a follow-on. As though it doesn't have a follow-on. And as Ayan has just showed you, as it has a follow-on. So I think this gets back to the, the very important question the lady uh, halfway back there uh, made, 
which is whether or not this can be a religion of peace. I believe it can be. And when I said earlier there are three types of Islam I identified, I said the first one, the scriptures, the life of Muhammad and so on, bad. Second one, Sharia, interpretations, bad. But thirdly, the way Muslims live their lives today, in this country and countries like it, that is our source for hope. And the source of hope for that is that they individually use, uh, like many people do religion. I'm not a religious person, I aren't either. But we recognize the fact that people of religious faith have the right to that faith, should practice that faith, should have no fear of practicing that faith. There's no problem with this. But it's a private matter, and one which people come to very strange private arrangements about. And I just wanted to add this, which is that if those people are going to be able to reform that faith into the religion of peace you're talking about, then yes, we would be the first people to encourage them. But if we're going to have that debate, as I hope we've shown tonight, it has to start with honesty. Let's it do one more round of questions. We have, Donna, do we have time for one more round? Yeah. So I'm going to do it again. Um, I, would, I would love to hear from an audience member who is a member of the Muslim community. If you feel like speaking. And not that I'm profiling, but I saw a lot of blonde people raising their hand. And again, I realize it's a complex world. Jihad Jane was blonde. All right, I'm going to take something from the left. Yes, blonde person, you can go. Anybody from the... Yeah, okay, okay, go ahead. And then on the, on the right side, yes, okay. Ma'am, I see you. Yep. So, uh, again, remember that way that great question was phrased? That's how you do it. So, for those in favor of the motion, my question is um, what she just read from the Quran. You know, you, didn't, you, you expressed that you didn't agree with it, and clearly, you know, you're interpreting the religion as you will and in a very, peacefully way, in a very peaceful way, um, which is great. But, you know, do you ignore those parts? How do you react to it? Do you... You said there were multiple ways, just like we interpret the Constitution, there are multiple ways to interpret what the Quran is saying. I just want to know exactly how you interpret that chapter she just read to us. Thank you. To that end, I happen to be Roman Catholic, but my wife is Israeli and my son just went through his bar mitzvah. <clears throat> there was some pretty spicy stuff in Leviticus. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, <laughs> Yes. Hello. Um, I'm from Pakistan. I'm a Muslim from Pakistan, and I just want to comment on the suicide bombings. Uh, there's one almost every week. And uh, if you feel that as a nation, after being destroyed repeatedly for, uh, since 9-11, uh, we would still be sympathetic to extremist sentiments uh, when our, you know, two of my students were killed in suicide bombings. Oh, but what is your question? My question is, I want, you to, I want you to consider what the, the value of the socio-economic, cultural factors, uh, political dictatorships, uh, what, what role do those factors play in making young people susceptible to extremism? Do you not, do you not feel that Majid covered that in his remarks? Because I feel that he did. Well, I don't think uh, the, let, the let audience me, understands. Let me put it on hold then. And then the third person. I have a question for Ayan Hirsi uh, I'm a Muslim woman, and uh, she was referring to the subjugation of women. This has to do with uh, the subjugation of women. I'm from India, and uh, my question is, if women are not uh, educated, 
you know, a lot, in a lot of Muslim countries, that's the problem, that the education, women are not educated. And when they're not educated, they don't know what their rights are. And so they're not going to demand their rights. That's the whole point in not educating half the population. But my question to you is, what does that have to do with Islam? Because according to my understanding of the Quran, the first word that was revealed of the Quran to Prophet Muhammad was read. It had to do with education. And the Quran... So, no I, I, can you give me one, a question in one sentence? Uh, I know you can, so go for well, it. Well, uh, uh, my question is, what does, what does that have to do with Islam? Because... The Quran doesn't say that according to my understanding. The education, it doesn't say educate men, do not educate women. Nowhere in the Quran have I found that. Let's so. take that last question first, Ayan. Um, I want to agree, thank you so much for that question. I completely agree with you that uh, women in the Muslim world today, not all of them, but most of them, are denied education. The reasons that are given by those who do the denying are Islamic. They refer to the concept of guardianship, so the guardian has the authority to decide whether he sends a girl to school or not, and for how long she goes to school. The main reason in Muslim countries where girls are sent to school, Muslim communities where girls are sent to school, the main reason for pulling them out at the age of menstruation is the fear, the terror, that they might lose their virginity. That modesty, sexual modesty, that is demanded of girls, which at first it preceded Islam, it was a tribal Arab culture elevated to religion in Islam, where people find within the Quran that in, in the Hadith that insistency on her virginity, on her being a virgin on the night of her, uh, of the, her wedding, that is one of the main reasons that is given. And if sexual emancipation were to occur within the Muslim world, and I want to challenge a guy like Majid Nawaz to take the forefront as a man by saying that you value a partner, a human being, more than her hymen. That would revolutionize Islam completely. That would, it would take, girls would go to school, they would be independent, they would be able to, they would be able to articulate what their rights are, and more importantly, they could make Islam a religion of peace because they would bring their boys up to be employable, to be educated, and to pronounce suicide killings and, and martyrdom. Uneducated mothers, uneducated mothers are mothers whose children, whose boys, bad guys can take advantage of. We're, we're at the point where normally we move on to our third round. We have these two questions standing out there, and I'm going to extend with everybody's acceptance a few minutes of this section tonight. Nobody seems to be leaving and no one's asleep. Um, so, um, Majid, yeah. if you can be very brief yeah. to that and then I want to get to the well, last Well, actually, question. to be honest, uh, I value a can of Diet Coke more than a hymen. I mean, I I mean really, uh, everything's more valuable to me than a hymen, especially a woman. So I really don't understand the point of your question there. But, but allow me to say, however, that every Muslim questioner from the audience today is not a true Muslim, and every one of you may be a Christian is not really a Christian, and any of you may be a Jew is not really a Jew, because I have the absolute monopoly of defining all three of those religions for all of you. Um, and, and, and really, the passages that, because I'm, I'm saying this because of the, of the first question, and that is, the passages that were referred to about fight them wherever you see them. Now, the thing is, really, the founding fathers of this great country 
who wrote the Constitution believed in slavery and were practicing slavery. Now, does that mean that we're going to define the whole of America and its constitution by that practice? Or are we going to contextualize that practice and say that when they founded this country, slavery and and abolishing slavery was not at the forefront of their minds, but later on it was abolished, and that's an achievement for this country. It's not something that defines this country. And so, likewise, these passages, yes, they can be used and they are used in a problematic way. And it's our responsibility, not just as Muslims, but as decent human beings, to go out there and challenge the abuse of these passages. But we must not forget that as with every other document in history, it had its context and it was abused. And now when we have gone ex post facto, we can look back to that and judge it with a very civilized standards that we've arrived at and say, that was wrong. Now perhaps, let, let, me put the que- time, let me put the question, I may be defined as I want to put the question as it was phrased to, to Zeba, well, which I'm was, how do you filter out, them. right, exactly, how do so, you filter that out? How do, so, how do I in- interpret is what you're asking, despite what our opposition says, I do have that right. Um, and basically, I, I, I look at my faith, I'm sorry, well, who asked the question? Oh, okay. I, I ask, um, I look at my faith and the way I was raised with core Islamic principles, which is how my family raised me and that I determined as an adult were correct, which is compassion and tolerance and plurality and, and strength and diversity, because we are a diverse uh, population. There are as many interpretations of Islam as there are people. And so the other point I want to make to that is that there are clergy and clerics who, are, um, who, who do stress this. I mean, if you look at 2005, it's the Iman message where 200 Muslim scholars from 50 countries stressed a re-emphasis of Islam's core values of compassion, mutual respect, acceptance, freedom of religion. Um, there, there is precedent for this, not just for me as, as a layperson, but from the clergy as well, to reassert these, these lost, in some, in some areas, lost uh, values. Douglas uh, Murray. It's a very, very complex one, but it has to be said. Uh, Majid just given the comparison with the Founding Fathers, and there has to be some clarity about this. This country rightly reveres your Founding Fathers, but you don't think that their word was immutable or unchangeable. You don't believe, I don't know, I don't think that anyone in this room who criticised Mr. Jefferson now here tonight will be declared an anti-American apostate who can be fit for slaughter. The problem that our opponents have to address, they have to address this, is that in a religion which is based on the idea that the Quran was dictated direct by God to Muhammad, and that therefore if you are criticizing the Quran or throwing out bits or pulling it apart, like, like most Christians and Jews, most Christians and Jews have come to that stage, but pretty much you, you, you pick a mix with your holy scriptures and uh, it's, it's quite a good, humane way around it. But with Islam, if this is the revealed word of God, revealed, it has to be said, as it was shown again earlier tonight, in a particularly obscure and unreadable uh, dialect, uh, which, if it was meant to be understood by the whole of the world, it's a bad place to start. Um, if, if, if this were the case, then, th- as I say, we come back to this problem. The Founding Fathers did, said many great things and did some bad things. But you are not committed as Americans not to criticize the bad things they did. And this is a problem our opponents are going to have to address. And that concludes round two of our debate. So here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. They will be two minutes each. And this is their last chance to change your minds and to respond to some of what's been said over the last hour. You will be asked 
to vote once again and to pick the winner just a few minutes from now. But first, on to round three, closing statements. Our motion is, Islam is a religion of peace. And speaking first against the motion, Ayan Hirsi Ali, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a critic of fundamentalist Islam. Islam is not a religion of peace, and I woke up to the facts on the 11th of September 2001. Perhaps I should have woken up to the facts earlier, but I admit that I did that then at that time. Talking to people of my faith, Islam, and my friends, and discussing with them, I remember all kinds of fallacious arguments, but I remember one consistent thing, and that was to exempt Islam from any criticism. It was culture. It wasn't Islam. But a religion is born in a culture. And if that culture is not peaceful, then that religion is not peaceful. I was told it's politics. We've heard it tonight many times. It's not the religion. But Islam not only has a pious dimension, but it also has a political dimension, a complex system of laws, a political philosophy on how society should be organized. And if you look at that political system, it's anything but peaceful. What emancipated me from the order to submit my will completely to Allah, which in practice means the concentration of power in the hands of a few, was to learn to think critically, the enlightenment. Vote against this motion and open up the flows of Islam for debate in order that Muslims, those who are not yet emancipated, may take charge of their own reason, of their own faculty. Vote against the motion that Islam is a religion of peace and toss, toss that fallacy into the trash can of history. Thank you. Thank you. I am Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. Now to summarize his closing position for the motion, her position for the motion, Zeba Khan, writer and advocate for Muslim American civic engagement. Thank you. Um, Faisal Sujad, Sujad Shazad, um, the underwear bomber, and the, the group of young men that were picked up in Pakistan. All of them were, were for violence and trying to attack our country and, and learn how to attack our country elsewhere. But the one thing else that the media consistently forgets to mention or conveniently forgets to mention is who turned all of them in. It was Muslims. It was their family. Because that is a Quranic principle that you stand up for justice, even if it's against yourself. And in this case, someone's son or several people's sons, or the, the underwear bomber's father, who was Nigerian and not American, did this, um, turned him in and an sent word to the authority. Um, and a Senegalese merchant was one of the first unreported, but was one of the first people to see the, the Times Square attempted bomber. Our opponents have a very simplistic outlook on, this, on, on the world and, and what this, what's currently at stake. They see it being Islam versus the West. But the truth is, it's not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's between moderates and extremists of all kinds. And I urge you to vote for the motion because the overwhelming majority of Muslims, the facts are clear. They are peaceful. They're, they're mainstream, and they condemn violence against civilians 
and have no interest in terrorism, which is consistently, as the woman in the audience said, are attacking Muslims, mainstream Muslims, every day brutally and oppressing them because we don't accept their version of Islam. I'm asking for your help for as other people, as, as people of reason and of people of a moderate voice to support us as we fight them, and, and we are fighting them, although we don't hear it as often in, in the media, which, which focuses on violence and fear. But the fact is Muslims have always been fighting them. Zeva Khan, your time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace, and here to summarize his position against the motion, Douglas Murray, best-selling author, founder, and director of the Center for Social Cohesion. Thank you. Well, um, thank you for a very uh, enlightening, I think, debate tonight. I think we, uh, on this side, made it very clear that we don't think there's a fight between Islam and the West, or Islam and civilization, or anything else like that. We've made a very clear set of points tonight. And one of those points, which I hope people will bear in mind, is we have said repeatedly that it is in Muslims and their critical faculties, Muslims and their behavior, Muslims and their faith, that we have hope. And it is in people like you that we have hope for the future. And if the motion were that Islam a century from now could be a religion of peace uh, and people would be quoting uh, Ziba and, uh, and Majid uh, and uh, seminal moments like this and that they had learned, well, that would be terrific. But at the moment, tonight, you're being asked to vote on whether Islam is now a religion of peace. Is Islam a religion of peace? I think it is very clear that it is not. This does not mean, of course it doesn't mean, that Muslims are all violent. We would never make that point. We never have made that point. Nor does it mean that there isn't hope in the future. Nor does it mean that we have to have continual clashes till the end of time. But it means we have to start by being honest. We have to be frank about what we see in Islamic history, in Islamic, in Islamic conquests, and in Islamic scripts. We have to be frank about that. In uh, societies which uh, Islam dominated, uh, conquered, and subdued the peoples in the Middle Ages, uh, people who were not Muslims were sometimes allowed to remain in those societies, but they were allowed to do so only by having second-class status, dimmy status. Uh, I would ask you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, not to be dimmies, not to have second-class status, not to vote for things because you think it's polite or because you think you have to say them, but because you think they're true. On that basis... The idea you could vote uh, for the motion tonight is absurd. Islam is palpably, demonstrably, evidently not a religion of peace. A vote against this motion. Thank you. Thank you. Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. And our final speaker to argue for the motion that Islam is a religion of peace, Majid Nawaz, director of the Quilliam Foundation and formerly a member of a radical Islamist party. Thank you. Uh, right, so I'm not going to ask you to be polite. I would uh, dread to think that that's why you'd vote for the motion. In fact, what I'd like to do is give you four reasons uh, to vote, uh, uh, basically four reasons why the panel's uh, arguments are incorrect and four reasons then to vote for the motion. Um, and as for the failure of the panel, I think number one is that there's a failure to contextualize. As I've tried to say time and time again, there's a failure to contextualize history and texts and sources, um, and there's an intellectual suspension that occurs when discussing Islam that simply doesn't occur when discussing the Constitution or any other piece of literature or writing. Secondly, there's a failure to disclose, and as we've heard from the panel, both of them, and there's nothing wrong with this, by the way, both of them are not believers of any faith, and that's their perfect right to do so, but they've made it clear their real agenda is with all religions. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves that actually religions can and have historically played much good and have, have come to much good in the world, including the Reformation, despite the fact we have to contextualize it. Thirdly, there's a failure to nuance. And as we've heard, 
Gross generalizations about Islam by quoting isolated passages are being made. And fourthly, there's failure to be honest. honest. And that honesty uh, uh, is, is in refusing to recognize that the vast majority of Muslims, where there have been democratic elections, have refused to turn in the extremists, as the examples I cited in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Now, please vote for the motion. And the reason I'd say that is reclaim Islam. Don't let the minority hijack it. Yes, even for those of you who are not Muslims, reclaim it because it's a faith like all other faiths that does need to be redefined in current times. Secondly, vote for peace. This is not a vote for Islam. It's a vote for peace. And I'm sure all of us want peace. And thirdly, I'd say, help the confused Muslims in the world, the faction, the minority, the young minds, like I was, who are confused, help them make up their minds by giving them guidance, by giving them an olive branch and voting for peace tonight. And finally... I'd say that even if you're unsure, even if you think Islam is not a religion for peace, I would ask all of you here tonight to vote, as we've heard the admission from the other panel, it can be a religion of peace, so vote for what you'd like Islam to be. If you'd like Islam to be a religion of peace, vote for it. Thank you. Thank you. Roger Nawaz. And that concludes our closing statements, and now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. Sorry? Okay. Now it's time to learn which side has argued best. We are asking you again to go to the keypad at your seat that will register your vote. We'll get this readout almost instantaneously. Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. If you agree with the motion, push number one. If you disagree, if you're against the motion, push number two. If you're undecided, push number three. And we'll have the results in about a minute. Uh, before we get there, I just want to say that uh, this has been probably the most spirited debate that we've ever had, and uh, I thought it was conducted uh, mostly with respect uh, and with honesty, and I want to congratulate all of our panelists for coming out here. I want to... Uh, I want to thank you and our audience. The questions were all excellent, including, ma'am, the one that I didn't get to. I apologize, but it was a time issue. But the questions were terrific, and I want to thank all of you for coming to the metal detectors, which were a metaphor, in a way, for the situation that we're in and the reason that we're debating this topic. But I would, you should give yourselves a round of applause for being here and for taking part in this tonight. Um, I want to let you know that our next debate will be on Tuesday, the 26th of October. The motion, then, is big government is stifling the American spirit. Panelists for the motion are former Texas Senator and Vice Chairman at UBS Investment Bank, Phil Graham, and Art Laffer, a former Reagan economic advisor who is known as the father of supply-side economics. Against the motion, NYU, Stern Business School professor Nouriel Roubini, and Laura Tyson, who is a professor at the Haas School of Business at the University of California in Berkeley and a member of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. Individual tickets are still available. You can get them by going to our website and also upstairs at the Skirball box office. Intelligence Squared U.S. is now on Twitter. You'll find us at twitter.com slash IQ2US. You can follow us for announcements and interesting links and uh, you can video uh, of this debate. You can find by following those links. You go to, uh, you can use hash IQ2US, and also you can tweet about what you thought about tonight's debate and its results. And you can become a fan of Intelligence Squared US on Facebook, and by doing so, receive a discount on upcoming debates. All of our debates, as we've talked about, uh, are heard on more than 220 NPR stations across the country. Remember, as you stand, to turn your cell phones back on, or you might miss important calls. 
You can also watch the debates on the Bloomberg Television Network. They, this debate will start airing next Monday at 9 p.m. It will be repeated through the week at that 9 p.m. time slot. Visit Bloomberg.com to find your local channel. Intelligence Squared is now one of the most popular uh, public affairs podcasts on iTunes, and you can download that and listen to past debates at IQ2 US. All right. It's all in now. I've been given the results. Remember, the team that changes the most minds is declared our winner. And here it is. Our motion is Islam is a religion of peace. Before the debate, 41% were for the motion, 25% were against, and 34% were undecided. After the debate, 36% are for the motion, 55% against, 9% undecided. The side against the motion wins. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S.